0: Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the weekly side show where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Jun Kim. And
1: I'm Sam Marchetti.
0: And today we're going to get up to date from everything from diabetes to talking mushrooms on another discussion on the sidelines. So, Sam, uh, what have you been reading this week?
1: OK, you remember a few weeks ago, I think it was you and I, we talked about um, the first the first uh, organ transplant from uh, different species. So the first right. organ transplant of a different animal into a human. Yes. And do you remember what it was?
0: It was like a pig heart or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, so it was a 57-year-old man. Uh, His name was David Bennett Sr. Uh, He got the organ on January 7th, and basically he got a pig heart that was slightly modified, transplanted into himself, because he was um, incompatible with any currently available uh, human hearts that were on the organ uh, donor list. Okay. Okay. So they got uh, a slightly modified pig heart uh, and they transplanted it into him, and it was super exciting at first because uh, it's never been done before. And the first time they did it, it wasn't immediately rejected by uh, Mister Bennett's body; he just kind of accepted it, and it was working fine for a while. Um, Unfortunately, what I was reading this week uh, is that he did pass away recently. The the organ did end up failing. Um, Having said that, it's still a pretty exciting kind of. it's a pretty exciting advancement, the fact that it wasn't rejected immediately um, in the first place.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, too, because like, when when I think, like, oh, we should put an animal's organ in a human, that sounds to me like something that would immediately just get rejected. So it's been a few weeks that he has been able to survive with his new organ, right? So that, that seems like an advancement in itself, I agree.
1: Yeah, and it's also – it is kind of sad because it's becoming um... – I guess just as the population explodes, it's becoming more and more common that people are considering uh, xenotransplantation, which means, you know, taking the animal organs and putting them in humans. Um, uh, At the University of Alabama earlier this year, another thing they tried was putting uh, slightly, again, slightly altered uh, uh, kidneys into uh, a brain dead patient. And then the kidneys actually worked and were able to produce urine in this brain dead patient for uh, three days. Um, Hmm. So it is something that people are turning to a little bit more and they're getting a little bit more interested in uh, studying uh, xenotransplantation.
0: Right. Super cool. I mean, there is such a demand for organs and there just simply aren't enough organ donors. And there are just so many people who need the transplant. So I think it does make sense that we're trying to turn to animals and see what we can do there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So on completely different news uh, last week, we talked about how Google is, you know, advancing through the world. And we talked about these self-driving cars becoming available as ride shares. Uh, did you did you hear about this by any chance?
1: I haven't actually heard of the self-driving cars being available as ride shares, So like on Uber?
0: Yeah, so pretty much. Uh, but it's a different company. It's called Waymo, which is owned by Alphabet, which is the same company as Google. So yeah, they're, they're available specifically in San Francisco and uh, Phoenix. So very specific areas. But anyways, this week I read again that Google continues to be killing the technology game. So another company also owned by Google, the one that's also doing the self-driving cars, they have a different company called Wing. And now they're introducing drone delivery service for packages in suburban Dallas. So those that future that you might have seen <laughs> in any of those like social media stories or even maybe like movie shows where there's just drones delivering your packages as opposed to like humans delivering your packages. Uh, yeah, that's a reality for people in suburban Dallas. And they've been testing it actually for some time now, like over a year. So this has actually already been happening, but in obviously very select tests, but now what's happened is like starting like right now in April, 2022 uh, they're able to use it for commercial use, like make profit off of it, make money off of it. Uh, anyone in the public, as long as they live in the specific area in Dallas can ask for their products to be delivered via drone as opposed to human. Uh, and yeah, This is, and obviously this is just a few companies. So like Walgreens and some other American companies, this isn't like Amazon doing this yet, but yeah, that's, that's already happening.
1: I don't, I, why would you choose to have it delivered by drone? What if you live in like an apartment building? What if you're in just like a super high dense area? How's a drone yeah. going, you know? It's the same yeah. thing as like how Santa Claus get down the chimney in apartment buildings, but with exactly, drones. Exactly,
0: exactly. There's no way. <laughs> but yeah, so you make a good point here and this is why they haven't started to do those high density living areas yet. Uh, because just simply it, it, the concern that you listed, there's just not a way to really, it in places that are more crowded so there are still tons of issues for that which is why they're just doing large open like low density suburban areas in dallas so far but there's a few takeaways that are quite interesting which is that first of all that google is doing a ton with technology just not with the name of google right it's like wing or waymo that are doing these things but it's still the same company uh but the interesting thing is like i i actually don't think they're getting a lot of coverage, like Waymo and Wing are not very well-known companies, but obviously- Yeah, I've Google never is. heard of them before. Yeah, exactly. And so they're just kind of doing things on the side and, you know, I guess slowly but surely they'll come into the mainstream. But the second thing is, it seems that Wing has actually beaten Amazon in the race of commercial drone delivery because Amazon uh, is not doing this. They're they're testing, of course, but they haven't like gotten commercial approval yet. So that's pretty cool, I guess, for them. Because Amazon had a few missteps and apparently like one of the benefits of Wing is that they don't need to like land their drones. They can just like lower the package on like a tether and automatically release them. Uh, Apparently, that's one of the advantages that Wing has over Amazon. But anyways, yeah, there's still tons of issues for places that are crowded like we talked about, but they are starting up, which is crazy.
1: That is pretty crazy. It's also like wild to think about just how far AI is coming. Because I'm guessing these drones are, you know, like AI. Like they're not, you know, human piloted, are they?
0: They're actually for now human piloted. For oh, no- they are. They are yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> So there's just
1: somebody sitting there with like a remote control. flying Exactly. The so exactly. Okay. Yeah. But I guess, I, I guess that's, that's the next step. Yeah. yeah, I would think the next step would be getting an AI to go do it. Man, it's wild, though. I just assumed AI would be behind yeah. <laughs> it, right? Given how yeah. much AI is behind now. I mean, yeah, um, not,
0: not a not an unfair assumption to make, I agree.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a cool area to keep looking at into the future, though.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in other news, um, you heard of ozone?
0: Yes, like the ozone layer.
1: Yeah, like the ozone layer, the ozone hole. So back in the, what was it, the 80s, the 70s, late 70s? Um, uh, the human population kind of realized that we were destroying this layer in the um in the uh, upper and uh, lower atmosphere, um basically way up high. We we realized we were destroying this layer of a chemical called ozone, and what that ozone does is it kind of reflects UV light back into space before it can come and hit the surface of the Earth and cause damage to us because you know UV light in high um high amounts can damage uh, your DNA, can cause cancer. Um, you can even get like, you know, minor burns uh, immediately. Um, there's actually a, a trek a while ago, and I don't remember who it was or what context it was in now, but somebody went and did an expedition to Antarctica where there's still a small hole in the ozone. Oh. Um, yeah, somebody did a trek there and went and basically stood underneath the ozone hole, um, and they ended up with these uh, like burns on themselves uh, when they came back. Oh, wow yeah and that was you know um it, it's pretty crazy but luckily since then we banned uh most of the things that are destroying ozone uh in the atmosphere so we most of the ozone hole is actually recovered and we are on track to see a full recovery of the ozone layer um we, within a, a decade or two. Oh, that's great unfortunately we've also figured out that ozone can be a pollutant um so despite the fact that it reflects the sun rays it reflects the sun's rays when it's up high in the atmosphere. What we've realized really recently, and this was March 31st, the study came out. Um, they noticed that ozone pollution in the lower atmosphere, so that's down here where we are, um, is actually playing a significant role in driving climate change.
0: Oh, man. So this is just, I mean, like there's no real solution other than making sure the oceans is all the way up in the upper atmosphere then
1: yeah well the biggest thing is just that you know ozone pollution down at this level um it's actually and it's weird they were studying um they were studying like the southern oceans and they kind of noticed that ozone pollution was responsible for like 60 percent of um the 60 of ozone induced warming uh in that kind of area which is wild because you know ozone increases are usually thought of as something that would maybe change the climate in the northern hemisphere because that's where all the ozone pollution is but it's changing the climate in the southern hemisphere and warming the oceans
0: sounds like this issue is a lot more complicated than we once thought and we really got to rethink a few things for sure
1: yeah it is really interesting to think about just on the basis of the different you know the different uh, altitudes of the ozone concentrations it has completely different effects when it's high up it's benefiting us and it's protecting us from you know UV radiation but when it's down here it's also it's actually preventing um you know the ra- heat radiated from the earth to, from escaping back to space
0: right and it's scary to think that like even something that we thought was good for us uh does end up as a pollutant because it just kind of goes to show that like more things than you think can end up being pollutants and the impact that humans have are probably larger than we already think as well
1: yeah absolutely
0: all right so i also read some really cool stuff about some treatments for diabetes, and I think that this is going to be a little bit interesting because it inc- involves nanotherapy. Because that's kind of a term that's saved for like ah these futuristic new treatments. But honestly, this form of nanotherapy seems pretty down to earth. So so let me explain what I uh, read about this week. So people have type one diabetes from a young age. That's what type one diabetes is. It's a genetic condition, and because what what they're missing genetically is the ability to create their own insulin because their own immune system will attack their own pancreas cells they're called islet cells that make insulin and that means that they just do not have insulin which is very very necessary a natural protein in the body that breaks down sugars or energy sources so that's the issue so people who with type 1 diabetes need to take insulin injections and they need to have insulin treatment for the rest of their lives pretty much so people have been trying to treat type 1 diabetes for a very long time. And one of the ideas they had is why not just transplant islet cells, which is the, the cells that make the insulin, and hopefully make sure that the immune system doesn't attack them. That's the goal. So the first part is possible, right? We transplant the islet cells. That's, that's not too hard. But then the second part is very difficult because the immune system kind of goes crazy because one they're foreign islet cells from a different body. And two, uh, the immune system already has been destroying the host's islet cells. So obviously, they're going to destroy the new ones as well. So, you know, this fine balance between, you know, turning off the immune system too much, meaning that you get infected with other diseases. If you allow the immune system to continue operating normally, it'll just destroy the islet cells all over again. Like, where's the fine balance? So one of the drugs they use is called rapamycin. And similar issue here. If you use too much rapamycin, it's toxic. And if it, you use too little rapamycin, then it does literally nothing for the immune system. So again, finding the balance is hard because when you orally swallow rapamycin, some of it gets, some of it gets digested and it's not even fully effective. So, so here's where the nanoparticles or the nanotherapy comes into play. So researchers realized, okay, we need to use this drug rapamycin. It isn't very effective when it's taken orally. And swallowed because it will digest half of it and like you don't really get all of the full drugs effects so why not pair it with nanoparticles and these nanoparticles are injected into the bloodstream with rapamycin normally if you inject it it's way too toxic but since it's paired with the the nanoparticles apparently the nanoparticles can pretty much hold the rapamycin and only activate it once it reaches its target site which are like the t-cells in the immune system so they've paired this nanoparticle, and I don't know the details of the nanoparticle, but apparently it is able to hold off the effects of the drug until it reaches the point that it needs to be at. And ultimately it reduces side effects. It can, you know, you can use less of the drug and they te- tested it in mice. And apparently it cured diabetes temporarily, not like a 100% great solution, but at least did cure diabetes temporarily, which is pretty cool.
1: Wow. So it kind of sounds like it works on the same uh the same principle that like you know um when you take uh i think it's tylenol has them like the gel caps you know when you you swallow a gel cap and then uh, it only gets released when it's at the right point in your digestive system that the gel cap can be broken down
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's the same principle of like slow release in a way where it's like delayed response or trying to make sure that not the entire drug is used all up all at once and I mean, yeah, I think it's cool that, you know, people keep talking about like, ah oh, nanotherapy, nanosurgery, all of that's in the future. I guess nanosurgery is kind of in the future, uh, but nanoparticles are being used today.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Man, to think, you know, the last time I thought about nanoparticles, I just thought about, uh, you know, the uh, Iron Man suit in uh, Endgame. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in other news, uh, very, very different, sort of, actually. This is still on a on a microscopic scale. but Cool. Something that was done uh, just a couple days ago, um, for the first time, uh, there was a kind of a treasure trove, they say, of new data about RNA viruses published, um, and it came from uh, a collection of thirty five thousand water samples around the world's oceans uh, that have been collected over the last uh, number of years, um, and basically this uh, this data has revealed an entire you know new phylum of uh rna viruses uh and more importantly they found this phylum of rna viruses all over the world um okay yeah so it kind of you know shed some light on the fact that well these viruses must uh, have some kind of importance ecologically um to the world around us because they are everywhere right yeah um and it was actually pretty interesting how they went about this because it's very difficult to just go and look for uh you know viruses in the oceans um so what they did was they went to um they went and looked at different organisms floating in the sea um so because it's hard to find and detect rna viruses they would look for the genes of organisms that are currently floating in the sea so the way the viruses work is they'll go through um you know one of two cycles when they attach to your cells either the lytic cycle or the lysogenic cycle Um, and a lot of them will eventually end up in the lysogenic cycle. Um, which is this cycle where that viral uh, RNA is actually uh, kind of integrated into your DNA, uh, and it just sits there dormant. It doesn't do anything. Okay. So what researchers did was they went and looked at organisms in the sea, and then they looked at their DNA, and they looked for specific sequences that contain uh, this one specific gene called RDRP. Um, and RDRP is this gene that we know uh, has evolved for you know billions of years in RNA viruses and isn't present in other viruses or other cells. Um, so they kind of look and they see okay this organism has this ancient RNA piece of genetic information. I'm um, sorry, ancient piece of uh, viral genetic information is what I meant to say. Um, so therefore, we can kind of say well we know this virus must be in the same place as this species because it's been integrated into its uh, into its genome.
0: And what was the result? Did they find that these like floating organisms everywhere did have that genome?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Basically, all over the oceans, they found that, um, you know, different organisms have this gene. So we can kind of tell that this whole new phylum of uh, RNA viruses is everywhere. Um, and it, it's also cool because it helps us not just to track viruses, but because they're so old, because this gene is so ancient, it's also kind of helping us to trace uh, the origins of life. So we can see the origins of life showing up in all these different places now. Um, which is just really awesome.
0: Oh, that's very cool. And like there's the crazy statistic where we've only discovered like or explored like five to 10% of our own oceans. So I think it's very fitting that all of these unknowns, including viruses, like we might be looking for fish or like other like mammalian species or something like that. But no, there's also tons of viruses, bacteria, I'm sure that are waiting to be discovered within the oceans as well.
1: Absolutely. And you know they found uh like uh 5 5500 I think new uh RNA virus species within this uh this new collection of data. And even that is like next to nothing. Like it's very exciting because it is, you know, it's a leap. It's a lot more, but at the same time compared to everything that's out there, it's next to nothing, you know?
0: Right. I also just wow, the process of finding 5500 new unique species. I mean, that that just seems I mean, incredible, but also a very difficult process to even like differentiate. Like, ah, this one is clearly a different species from this other one. Like that. That seems like a very grueling process in and of itself.
1: Oh yeah, there's like almost fifty authors on this paper. Like, okay. there's <laughs> almost fifty people that put the uh, you know put the work in.
0: <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So there was actually a new discovery on land as well, and this is the crazy, crazy story that mushrooms can talk. So believe it or not, mushrooms do communicate with each other. Uh, do you have any guess as to how? uh i want
1: to i want to say it's like an avatar where they like probe the ground and they can see like all those you know connections between the trees i feel like it's like that
0: you're actually very close uh and uh funny that avatar actually kind of gets that pretty accurate then uh it's so we use air vibrations as in our voice to talk but mushrooms use electrical signals to communicate and where those electrical signals come from is exactly what you said. Uh, there are long structures underground called hyphae and they work actually very similar to nerve cells in humans and they just conduct electrical signals to other hyphae to communicate information. So that's how fungi in general, so I said mushrooms, but fungi in general use this to communicate. Very, very cool stuff. And the reason why this is necessary is like, Mushrooms aren't like sole mushrooms, like you won't find like a singular mushroom, like they usually grow in patches and fungi specifically are in large, large, like growths next to each other. Uh, And what that means is they need to communicate with other parts of itself. So since it grows in patches like that, or even grows on trees and things like that, there needs to be some form of communication. So let's say there are things like threats. If a part of a fungal network is injured or they need to communicate where nutrients are rich, well, apparently all of those things are communicated through those electrical signals through the hyphae. And what's very cool is apparently other plants that are connected through that hyphae network, such as trees that they're growing on, can also get signals from them. Uh, if they interpret the signals the same, I don't know. But yeah, mushrooms can talk to trees as well in a way. So one researcher was incredibly curious about these electrical signals and looked at them to see if there were any observable patterns and they actually fully claimed that there are about 50 discernible words that are tied wow. together to communicate different forms of information. So like the equivalent of a words I suppose. But yeah, there's 50 unique electrical signals that they are calling words and the researchers are saying, "Haha, maybe this is a language, but it's maybe a little bit too early to call it a full language, right, with grammatical structures or whatever." Uh because we're not sure if all this communication was actually developed, which is, you know, one of the facets of language, or if this is just random electrical signals based on survival instinct. But the thing is, there are clear patterns. There is communication going on. There seem to be words and patterns strung together to pass on specific forms of information. Uh, and it's at least a form of communication to keep the entire fungal network intact uh, because they grow in large patches or networks. So, yeah, that that is the cool finding for mushroom communication.
1: That is awesome. It's kind of... I mean, I, I guess it's, you know, I can see both sides of the argument in the scientific community, people saying, oh, look, this could definitely be a language. And then other people saying there's, you know, we want to see a little bit more evidence first. Um, mm-hmm. But that is super cool that, you know, all these things that we've known about, like fungi and like trees and all this, like we've known about it for a while, but mm-hmm. they could have been communicating completely under our radar for so long. Like, that's crazy.
0: Like, uh, people who have dogs always wonder, like, ah, I wonder if my dog can communicate with me, or at least they also wonder if dogs can communicate with each other. Uh, But, you know, they probably can. And the other thing is also, you know, even fungi can. So normally dogs can too, other pets can too. So, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. The, just nature communicates a lot more than we think, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I suppose, you know, at the end of the day, it just goes to show there's still a lot of very basic things that we don't know.
0: Absolutely. And, and that's why we do the show. So thanks for joining me, Sam. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about the ozone layer or any of the other topics we've talked about on the show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Sci4Everyone and on our website at www.science4everyone.ca.
1: The Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On The Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.